At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Diana Rogers, author of the Homegrown Paleo Cookbook, to talk about her experience with nutrition and sustainability. Diana is a registered dietitian nutritionist living on a working organic farm outside of Boston, Massachusetts. She is the author of the Homegrown Paleo Cookbook, over 100 gluten-free seasonal recipes, and a complete guide to growing your own healthy food. Diana speaks internationally about nutrition and sustainability issues in our food system. She runs the popular podcast, Sustainable Dish, and works with people one-on-one to help them recover their health through real food. She can be found at sustainabledish.com. Welcome to the show today, Diana. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I've been looking forward to chatting with you for quite a long time. So, Yeah, thank you. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure, definitely. Well, I can say that... Uh... From way back, I've been interested in farming and nutrition mm-hmm. ever since I was a kid. Wow. I had um, undiagnosed celiac disease. I didn't get diagnosed oh. with that until I was 26. And so as a child, uh, for those people who don't know what celiac is, it's a basically the, the reason why so many people are gluten-free these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a autoimmune disease where your body basically attacks your intestines when you consume wheat. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So 
the nobody really knew what was going on. It's it's very common for people to be undiagnosed with this for up to 11 years until they finally figure out that gluten is the issue. So people suffer from all kinds of things. So not only just sort of GI uh, issues, but also mm -hmm. anemia, um, lots, lots of different things, brain mm -hmm. fog, <laughs> all kinds of things. So anyhow, so I was very sick as a kid and have always been interested in trying to figure out what was making me so sick. Right. Not only did I have GI issues, but I also had a lot of blood sugar problems. So uh -huh. I couldn't really go for more mm. than like an hour and a half without having a snack. So oh, wow. I was really addicted to to making sure that I had all my all my snacks with me. But in addition to that, uh, my summer job was working on an organic farm oh, really? down in my hometown. Yes, when I was in high school and college, and the farm is still there. It's in Sagaponic, New York. I grew up on the eastern end of Long Island uh, near the ocean. Oh, wow, cool. And went off to college. I studied fine arts, and so I, I have a, a degree in, in art education and art history, which mm -hmm. Uh, is actually quite helpful because I think today we churn out a lot of people that have no creativity. So <laughs> I'm yeah, actually thanks. really happy uh, yeah. that I that I studied that. And I met my husband, who is now an organic farmer, but at the time he was an English major in college oh, wow, cool. and had a lot of environmental uh, passion, but didn't really know how to apply that to oh, a job. Right. We moved out to the West Coast, lived in Portland, Oregon for a little bit. We both had corporate jobs working. He worked as a, in market research and I worked at an advertising agency and we're, you know, making enough money to pay the bills, but pretty unhappy mm -hmm. with, um, you know, being in a cubicle and oh, yeah. all that, the a whole corporate life. So luckily he had his midlife crisis when he was 28. Oh, nice. <laughs> Uh, actually, a little bit younger than that because we got married when we were 27. We moved back to the East Coast after about two years in Portland. Mm -hmm. He went back to the University of Massachusetts, but this time for a master's degree in soil science. Really? Yes. Oh, and wow. at the time, uh, sustainability was not something, you know, really on any college radar. So we are in our um, early 40s now. So this was you know, in the mid 90s when he went back for his master's oh, wow. and he didn't complete his master's only because he got an argument with the thesis committee because they wanted him to do a broccoli trial for his <laughs> thesis. And he wanted to write about the financial sustainability of CSAs. And they oh, were like, that's too wacky. That's too crazy. And of course, now you hear oh, yeah. all colleges are offering sustainability majors yep. and talking about their sustainability, you know, focus and everything. Yeah. But he didn't feel that he needed to really complete it because he got a job offer right away working on an organic farm uh, as the farm manager. We lived on that farm for 10 years. It was called Green Meadows Farm. It was um, wow. on the North Shore of Massachusetts. Nice. And it's actually owned by the Patton family, like General George Patton from oh, wow. World War II, uh -huh. which is really cool. And then about four years ago, we moved to Clark Organic Farm, which is also in Massachusetts. It's in a town called Carlisle, which is, it's right next to Concord. It's about uh -huh. uh, 45 minutes outside of Boston. But it feels like you're in the middle of Vermont here. It's very, very rural and beautiful. And so we run um, an organic CSA, vegetable CSA. We um, do pasture-based animals. So we have sheep, goats, pigs running through the woods, mobile chickens for eggs, 
Uh, and then we, so we do a CSA program here for the meat and the vegetables. Wow. And then we have a retail farm stand located up the street that's got solar panels on the roof. And we sell not only our own produce, but also local, locally produced foods from other artisan producers in New England. And nice. uh, yeah. And then we also do a lot with education. We host um, international students. So we work with a couple different international programs like Mesa. Oh, yes, based yes. In California, you know, Mesa. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine's on the board. Okay, great. Yeah. So we work with Mesa. So we have, um, right now, we have two young women from Brazil, and then we have a guy from Mexico and a guy from Peru. Wow. And every year we, we work with mostly South American, although last year we had a student from Vietnam here. And we do a communal lunch. So that's really fun for me because I get to eat Brazilian food and Peruvian food uh, uh -huh. every day for lunch, which is really fun. So we all rotate who cooks. So right. you, you cook for the whole crew one, you know, on your day. And we, let's see. So, and then we do a lot of education programs for schools. Uh -huh. So we work very closely with the Carlisle School, which is right up the street. They don't need a bus to come here, which is fantastic. So that's one of the, lim you know, limiting factors for school groups. Oh, and yeah. so- What age are lot, they? What, uh, th this is a K through eight school. So we have all, everything from kindergartners learning just about, you know, baby chicks all the way up to eighth graders learning about soil and uh -huh. composting and things like that. And they can walk there. They can walk here. Oh, yep. epic. Yeah. That is cool. So, and then we have kids that, you know, legitimately work, uh, right. including my son. So we have a 12 year old, we have a 10 year old daughter and a 12 year old son. Uh -huh. And my son is the number one tractor driver here on the farm. <laughs> and, you know, can really legitimately be very productive uh -huh. and contributes a lot and is really proud about it. So that's really fun for us that um, our kids get to grow up here and, you know, not only work on the farm, but have unstructured time in nature, which is so important and so lacking in today's world. Uh, so that's my farming side. But then I also recently uh, went back to school to become a registered dietitian oh, wow. because of my interest in nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so um, just completed that degree. So that's a medical degree so that I can practice nutrition. Right. Uh, so my, so although I live on the farm, my husband really is the one who manages it. I speak about sustainability, just got back from New Zealand last fall, just got back from Austin, Texas last week. So I, I fly all over the place talking about sort of the intersection between nutrition and sustainability. So like the benefits of eating grass-fed herbivores, uh, which is, I think I'm the only registered dietitian who endorses grass-fed meat and can really speak to not only the health benefits of it, but also the environmental benefits of it. So I spoke at the Savory Institute conference, just basically, you know, talking about how, you know, they build carbon, they, their poop can, you know, improve the biome of the soil. Oh, yeah. Their grazing, you know, stimulates growth, all that kind of stuff. So not only can I speak about that, but I can also tear apart scientific papers and really go after these claims that red meat causes cancer because it's just crazy. So these these studies are based on 
you know, not not very good science. Yeah. And so these are not randomized control trials. These are just correlations and correlation does not cause <laughs> it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not causation. Yeah. Yes. And so well, I have a question. I have a question for you about that. Since yeah. you seem to have a lot of, of data in your head about it. Um, I would think that the kind of red meat that one was eating would maybe contribute to to illness. In these, in these food frequency questionnaires that people are given to uh-huh. record what they're consuming, um, first of all, that's just bunk because people lie on those. And so they're just not truthful ways. People often forget the deep fried apple pie, large fries, and <laughs> 64-ounce Big Gulp that they had with that burger last week. Yeah. And they'll also forget that they're smokers and drinkers. Oh, yes. And then they'll remember how much they worked out last week right yeah. and they'll they'll lie basically it's 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 white coat syndrome where they're just trying right. to impress you know when you look at studies there was one study where they actually looked at people who shop in health food stores uh-huh. so you're getting sort of these people that are already healthy already healthy already yeah. health conscious and when you compare vegetarians to those people who are also shopping at health food stores who eat meat there's no difference no, yep. in that, mortality at yeah. all um, so really what they're what these studies when they're when they're looking at vegetarians versus meat eaters uh-huh. it tends to be vegetarians who are also you know working out doing yoga shopping <laughs> at health food stores yep. taking lots of supplements getting good sleep versus standard american diet oh yes okay so there's just too many variables in there to really make any sort of conclusions um about that so that's that's usually my biggest argument but you know fresh red meat versus a diet eating you know vegan and vegetarian proteins is you know, the meat is more bioavailable. Uh-huh. It's actually better for the planet to be eating one herbivore versus, you know, a monocrop soy yeah. product that's been highly manufactured and, you know, shipped many miles to get to you kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to travel back a little bit in our conversation. And I thought that your education is it's far ranging. You're touching a lot of people, a lot of young people. How have you seen a difference with that? What difference has it made? You mean from the farm-based education that we do here on the farm? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So our goal at the farm is not necessarily to convert young people to become farmers. Uh Um, although that happens a lot and we, we've seen, we've had many, many people both become farmers and nutritionists after working under myself and my husband. So Uh that's really inspiring because a lot of times the the people that work on the farm are also highly interested in nutrition as well. Uh But our goal really is to try to get these kids to have time on a farm so that when they become doctors and lawyers and all the important Mm. things that these young, you know, uh, it's a... I have to admit, a very affluent community that we live in. So these these kids are going to go far in the world. Right. But when they become these important people, that they're much more likely to be conservationists, to support local farms, mm-hmm. and to advocate for local agriculture in the future, maybe have their own gardens from having the experience of working on the farm. And we've, we've noticed that even with adults who our our CSA members will tell us, oh, I remember when I was a kid and Uh I used to visit this farm and everyone has fond memories of, you know, if they, if they visited a farm when they were kids, you know? And so we're really just trying to provide that right 
in the community. Yeah. So um, we don't deliver box shares. We we want everyone to come to the farm and experience the farm. We have oh, a very open nice. policy here yeah. with our members. And so they, they'll come and they'll walk around. They get to see the chickens. Um, and so that's the kind of thing, like in, in my cookbook, the Homegrown Paleo Cookbook, uh-huh. uh, when I, the first part of it is, you know, someone could take that information and legitimately go start homesteading right away. I have information on how to do beekeeping, how to, you know, raise chickens and all that kind of stuff. Nice. But my my intent with that also was to give people a sense of the proper way to that chickens should be raised so that they're not going to a farmer's market and saying, "Can I, is that chicken grass fed? You know, yeah. <laughs> or asking silly questions, you know, uh, I give people tips on what questions are good to ask oh, the farmer. This is farmers, in your, this is in your book. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, you know, farmers can be really good marketers too, right? Oh, yeah. And so if you ask, for example, what variety is this cucumber? You know, that's a good indication. If they can answer that question, then it's a good indication that they actually grew it themselves. Because right. I've, I've spent many years at farmer's markets as the vendor myself, uh-huh. watching other farmers sort of, you know, unwrap something in plastic and then put it out as if they grew it. So, <laughs> I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's like not. But right. that's, a, that's a really good point. Ask the farmer what variety it is. They, and if they grew it, they'll know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, mm-hmm. I, I also want to kind of dig a little bit into uh, your working with Mesa. Um, and the way I want to do that is I just want to ask you to tell me a story from one of the people that you interacted with that came mm-hmm. to visit with you. Geez, we've been doing it for so long. I think that, you know, one of the most interesting things is that for a lot of the, especially Peruvians and Ecuadorians that we've had on the farm, Uh they come from non-mechanized farms. So there's no tractors. They don't even have grocery stores. Um, Many of them didn't even have electricity until, you know, three years ago. And now they're all on Facebook. So it's like crazy, you know, imagine growing up your whole life with no electricity and now everyone's got a laptop and Facebook. Yeah. It's crazy. And so, so one thing that's, that's always been interesting to us is when they come here, just knowing to plant the seeds in a row, (laughs) Uh because if you don't have a tractor and you're not making beds and, you know, I mean, they basically just sort of till up the soil with their hand tools and then sprinkle the seeds everywhere. And, uh, you know, not necessarily thinning them out and planting things in rows to protect, uh-huh. uh, to, you know, be able to control for weeds. Right. And so that's, that's one big thing that they usually learn when they come here is, oh, I can, I can, you know, if I plant things in rows, then I'll have some space in between where I can, you know, weed everything and then yeah. the plants are much healthier. So that's, that's it. And then just, you know, learning from them about, you know, having no grocery stores and what they do for food, oh, right? Yeah. Because they don't, they often don't even have ways of keeping things cool. So, so smaller animals for them work better. So All right. a, chick, a chicken or a guinea pig, they, they love guinea pigs. Oh, um, but so, so, so you have to, if you want to eat that night, you have to go out and kill the animal and then you have to go harvest the vegetables or, you know, cook the potatoes, you know, from scratch or whatever. Uh-huh. And there's, there's not a whole lot of options for keeping the food over. So, I mean, that's truly sustainable, oh, right? Yeah. Wow. What so, do they do? What are they doing if they don't have a grocery store and I know this is coming from somebody that's lived in a metropolitan area my entire life. Right. What what does that process look like? 
So, I mean, everyone's a, a subsistence farmers. They're, that's what they do, their family. I mean, if you ask them, you know, how long has your family been farming this? Uh-huh. Their answer is, what are you talking about forever? <laughs> like forever, there has always been my family here on this farm. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't have a concept really so much of, you know, well, my, you know, we, we came here in 1742 and my great grandfather started this farm or whatever. It's not like that. It's, it's, you know, for all of history in their mind, they, uh-huh. they have been on that land, improving the land wow. and, and farming getting, and getting food off of it. Yeah. Wow. Cool. All right. So let's talk about nutrition. What sparked your interest in nutrition? So really it was my struggle with celiac disease and you know once I got diagnosed when I was 26 I uh-huh. went gluten free which at the time I thought was the most you know restrictive diet you could ever put anyone on Oh in my the gosh world. I'm sure I'm sure <laughs> um because I was you know even though I was eating pretty healthy what I thought was pretty healthy I was eating sort of low fat mostly vegetarian I was eating lots of lentils and brown rice and and all of that. But going gluten-free was, was I had my weekend with gluten after my diagnosis, and then I've never intentionally eaten gluten, gluten since. Wow. But the problem was I was still on this blood sugar roller coaster. So I was still mm. needing these gluten-free granola bars. I basically went from, you know, a healthy-ish version of the standard American diet to the gluten-free version of the standard American, American diet. diet. Yeah. So I was eating gluten-free toast for breakfast, a gluten-free sandwich for lunch, and gluten-free pasta for dinner, maybe with a gluten-free cookie and a gluten-free beer, <laughs> right? Right. And I didn't understand why I felt like I was pre-diabetic. Like I really, yeah. my my lipids weren't, panel was horrible. I, and I was never overweight. I've never been overweight. But I... I knew something was wrong because I just was, I would see red, I'd have like tunnel vision and start shaking and sweating if I missed a meal, right? And I know a lot of people can actually relate to that yeah, because that's most of the people I see in my nutrition practice today. Mm -hmm. And so I, I read a book that really changed my life and it was called The Paleo Solution by Rob Wolf. Have you ever heard of the paleo diet? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. So I read that book and everything just clicked. And I thought, okay, if, you know, I know we're not trying to relive caveman days, that that's Uh, not the point of the paleo diet, but just to look at, you know, what, you know, every species, including animals, if you think about on a farm, has an evolutionarily appropriate diet, right? Oh yes, of course. Right. So we we know that cows eating grass is better than cows eating grain. Right. And humans really for most of our existence on earth have not eaten grains and bread and pasta mm-hmm. and all, you know, sugars and big gulps and fries and all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, we've eaten a pretty boring diet of meat and vegetables and, you know, seasonal fruits and things like that. And then when you look at health consequence. I mean, heart disease wasn't even something that people were aware of until about a hundred years ago. Uh-huh. And now, you know, we're dying of heart disease All and, over the place. Yeah. you know, cancers and type two diabetes, which is completely type two diabetes is completely avoidable if yeah. through diet. Right. So I, I did the, the prescription in the paleo solution was a 30 day, um, strict paleo. So where I ate, you know, only I, I cut out all grains uh-huh. and I cut out dairy as well. And I just ate meat 
and vegetables and it, it wasn't no carbs. So I still got some carbs from sweet potatoes and carrots and things like that. But it was definitely a lot lower carb than I had been eating before. Mm-hmm. And I, the first couple weeks I was really tired. Um, my body was shifting from being a sugar burner to basically being a fat burner, which is, you know, it's a, it's a big shift for some people. Yeah. And by two and a half weeks or so, I just woke up and I could go from breakfast to lunch without a snack. Wow. I could skip lunch and be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like I mentioned, I didn't really have a problem with my weight, but I did have a little bit of extra sort of baby weight from yeah. having my two kids completely gone. So I lost that extra 10 pounds, just fell right off. And I never felt better in my life. It really blew me away and uh-huh. completely saved my life. And the author, Rob Wolf, is now probably one of my top five best friends. Um, wow. I work with him a lot. I write for his blog. I'm his consulting dietitian. And I we co-speak a lot at different conferences. And we're actually just about to start a book together. So oh, nice. Yes, it's great. Um, and we're going to sort of be talking a little bit about um, everything I've been talking about on the on this podcast so far. So that's a little bit of a hint about what the book's going to be about. Cool. Congratulations um, on that. Yeah. You know, getting, getting books written is an, it, it's an epic process. It mm-hmm. takes so much energy and, and, you know, I just, so congratulations. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So anyhow, I opened up my nutrition practice and found that paleo works for most everybody. And I don't think that you need to be paleo for your whole entire life. Uh-huh. But And I don't think that everyone has to go paleo. But I do think that a 30-day trial of like the paleo diet or something like the Whole30, which is um, very similar to paleo, it's a, uh-huh. it's, a, it's um, and I also work closely with the folks at Whole30. Um, I do think it's really beneficial to people, especially if they've got any kind of digestive issue going on or any kind of blood sugar regulation going on or even weird skin stuff, you know, clears up, sleep, sleep seems to clear up, headaches, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I usually do either, you know, some type of modified version of that with, with my nutrition patients. Um, I work a little bit more with supplements and other things. So they get a little bit more than just, you know, reading the book and following when I, when I work with people one-on-one, but I've seen people, you know, with crazy heartburn that had to sleep in recliner chairs because Uh they couldn't lay flat down, be able to sleep again, you know, after just changing what they eat. And so it's, it's just been really powerful. And I think that there's such a tie in between looking at natural ways of raising food and looking at what, how we're eating that food. And so, and there's not really anyone (laughs) that's connecting those dots together. So isn't that, isn't that just amazing to you? It just blows me away that, that we're missing that. Yes. And in my training as a registered dietitian, so I went through the the classic program. So Uh learning about, you know, like my plate and how, you know, we need to drink low fat milk and all these crazy things that they teach in the the standard RD program. (laughs) Um, You know, nothing was ever brought up about buying local about maybe we shouldn't be eating so many grains about, you know, every, their whole thing is, well, you know, soda's not so bad. It's just everything in moderation. And the problem oh, is, you know, moderation fails for most people. Yeah, right. Um, exactly. 
Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read Gretchen Rubin's book, uh, Better Than Before. No. But it's really fantastic. And she just talks about how, you know, really abstinence is much healthier for most people. Mm -hmm. So especially when you're you're talking about nutrition. So, you know, as a nutritionist, if I told you, Greg, that, you know, a little pie is no big deal. Uh Uh-huh it's very likely that you're going to just go eat the entire pie Pie. (laughs) because I said so, because I said it's no big deal. Right. Right, Exactly. And so it's just much easier to go 30 days with, you know, just resetting yourself, no pie, (laughs) no, no soda and just eat real whole food for 30 whole days. And then you can slowly bring it back. So I don't eat that way all the time. I, you know, incorporate lots of regular, you know, we'll go out for dinner and I'll have regular food and I'll drink a glass of wine or something. But in general, I do stick to this template yeah. and it, and I, I keep it with my kids as well. Wow. Sounds like it healed you from celiac. Yeah. So yeah, right. I mean, I, yeah. I went regular gluten-free and it, it mostly cured my intestinal issues mm-hmm. with celiac, but it didn't fix me all the way. And there's a lot of people walking around who aren't diagnosed celiac, but still, have gluten sensitivity it's a legitimate thing that doctors are now finally admitting that Uh non-celiac gluten sensitivity is an actual condition and that you know so rds really aren't going there yet but some medical doctors are and they're admitting that you know okay we don't have to have there's no rda for grains we don't have to be eating grains and you know what grains aren't that great for the environment anyway right right oh, there yeah. you don't need to be growing monocrop yep um gmo wheat corn and soy we just don't need it right uh, we don't need it for animal feed and we don't need it for human feed yeah yeah so you've given us an amazing amount of information over the past 10 minutes. And I, I really have to ask <laughs> you to tell us about your nutrition coaching business. How does that work? If I'm in Phoenix and you're in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, can you work with me? And how do people find out about it? And Yeah. So I have a, uh, my website is sustainabledish.com uh-huh. and people can learn about, you know, everything I've talked about here, find recipes, but then I also have my work with me section and I work with people all over the world. In fact, I, I just, I had a Skype meeting with, um, a U.S. foreign aid diplomat in, um, Bogota, Colombia. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And I've had patients in New Zealand, Australia. So, so I do, you know, video conferencing or phone conferencing as well as in person. So I have a few offices. Um, I work out of an office in downtown Boston, and then I have an office here in Concord, Massachusetts, right up the street from me. Nice. And so I have people commit to one, three or six month commitments. So uh-huh. Uh, they or they can just schedule a call and ask me anything. So I've got that option as well, where they can just you know have a one-off call and just sort of talk to me, ask me questions, or ask me questions about how to become a nutritionist because yeah. I get that as well. Oh yeah, um, good for but you. I find that if people are committed mentally to okay, I'm going to do something for a month, or I'm going to do something for three months, or you know, people that need a lot of accountability sometimes need the six month just to know that, okay, for the next six months, I'm going to be accountable to somebody, I'm going to follow a program. And it's it's really the best way to ensure success on on my end and their end. Wow. Wow, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So can you talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it? Yeah, well, I can talk about a time. I I guess I can talk about a time when I was having a really hard time. So, Yay. Um, so and I actually I wrote a blog post about it because I it, this past winter when I was completing my 
um, registered dietitian rotation. So I so dietitians have to work in hospitals and many other settings in order to be able to get the credential. And so I was working in a long-term care, it was an acute long-term care hospital. So basically people that are coming out of an ICU situation, but too sick to go into rehab, nursing home or home. Right. So these people are very, very sick and they're there for about three weeks or so is the average stay. And it was really, really, really hard for me. And I mm. fell into a pretty bad depression about it, actually. Um, because, yeah, well, it, you know, it was just hard for me because the food in the hospital was Ugh. terrible, yeah. right? And the tools that I had to help them were not great tools. So I had, I was able to give them, you know, if they weren't eating, I was able to recommend some boost or ensure, which are these, you know, like shake beverages full of corn syrup and yep. dyes and sugar. And then, you know, if they weren't eating at all and couldn't eat, uh, we could do enteral nutrition, which is basically a feeding tube, right. which again is corn syrup uh -huh. and, you know, just horrible it's not real food and uh or there's iv nutrition which is even more dangerous because if you're not using the gut all the bacteria in the gut basically translocate and you go septic oh, so wow. that's that's what happens so if, if anyone's out there and and thinking that maybe an iv feeding solution is better than uh, a feeding tube please go for the feeding tube because at least that's using your guts and that's right. better than, than the iv's situation but it was just, it was really hard. I, I had to spend about four months working in this hospital with very sick people. A lot of my patients died, mm. um, not because of me necessarily, but just, you know, people that I got very close to as yeah. a practitioner um, didn't make it. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, you know, my job today is, and my passion is to prevent people from getting into these horrible situations in the first place right. with their health. And so I felt very handicapped by, you know, the tools I was given and the situation I was in. And really how I decided to come out of it was to, you know, A, decide to just get better about being more proactive with people to prevent these kinds of situations from the first place. Yep. The other thing I learned from it was also just how to be a really good advocate for somebody who's in a hospital. Yeah. So, you know, the squeaky wheel legitimately does get better care in mm -hmm. a hospital. And I know that that is something that you don't want to think actually happens, but it totally does happen. Yeah. So you need to really ask those nurses and those doctors what's going on. You need to show up daily and make sure that people are, you know, getting their meals on time, getting right. the right test done, learn how to read labs or or have someone with you that that knows a little bit about the medical industry come with you because that really does help you um help your have your loved one get better care in a yeah. hospital. Sounds so. like that was a life-changing event for you. It really was. Yeah. Definitely. And wow. yeah, and I wrote about it. I, I, I wrote about a lot of my experiences on my website so people can check it out. It's um it it's it's definitely life changing for sure. Would you forward me the link for that particular story and we'll put it on the show notes page? Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Thank yep. you. So what do you consider your biggest success? Getting through the R D program. <laughs> For sure, because uh, I'm I'm now 42. Uh -huh. I have two children, so I had to 
and and the RD program, it's not just a master's degree. It's basically another bachelor's degree. So it oh it was gosh. significant uh, coursework. I had to start from. They didn't count any of my undergrad. Oh man. Which well, you know, even though I was an art major, I actually looking back at my transcripts, I took a ton of science classes. Not that I remember oh. taking any of these science classes <laughs> right. because undergrad was pretty much just a social scene for me. But I actually did take a ton. I've always been interested in science. Mm -hmm. And anyhow, I had to take Bio 101 again, Chem 101. I had to take Biochem, which, you oh know, it's hard to memorize oh, yeah. things um, when you're old. <laughs> so, you know, that it was definitely a challenge. I also wrote two books. So I had the Homegrown Paleo Cookbook, but I also have another cookbook called Paleo Lunches and Breakfast on the Go that I wrote during the program as well. Nice. Uh, I was doing all my speaking and all my, I was still doing consults while I was in the program. And so uh, the program was not only just time challenging, but, you know, it was also just very demanding as far as my, my mental state, right? Because yeah. I'm learning stuff that there were a few classes that I learned that I that I actually am glad I took, like the biochem. I'm oh, glad yeah. I, I know biochem. I'm uh -huh. glad I know how to read a scientific paper. And I took some advanced counseling um, classes. So, yeah. you know, that's really helpful, right, in, in like one-on-one -on -one situations. But you also have to learn a lot of food service and, you know, like what – number scoop do you use to get 32 servings out of a number 12 can you oh know things like that what'd you just say hold on <laughs> go ahead i was just kidding yeah so that you know there's a lot of food service there was a lot of sort of you know the so the you know the the standard diet for a diabetic you know in the in the education is a banana some cornflakes some low fat milk oh my gosh um you know, that's that's sort of the standard what they recommend you talk to diabetics about. And, you know, wow. really, I don't think a breakfast of 100 percent carbs with a tiny bit of protein and no fat is mm -hmm. really a great option for right. somebody who's having blood sugar issues. So it, it was definitely a, a challenge of just perseverance to get yeah. through it all. And finally happy that it <laughs> that it's done well I, I i feel you because i actually went back to school at 39 and graduated with my bachelor's at 44 and my master's at 46 so okay it is a different game when you go back late in life yes yeah one of the challenges i had was actually even these group assignments i don't know if you had to do those but <laughs> yeah. that was the most irritating to me so because yeah, you're I'm... dealing with 21 year olds right Right. So yeah. not only do you have to spend extra time on campus, which was an hour commute for me, uh -huh. but you have to work with these people that are just not paying attention because it's not their own money usually. Right. And they're just not as mature as you. Like I, as a mom, I am so oh, yeah. incredibly efficient with my time yep. <laughs> and I am sitting in the front row of all oh, these classes yeah, you bet. and I'm trying to get my, you know, my money's worth because these were very expensive classes oh, yeah. that I was taking. I got a straight A in every single class. Oh, congratulations. Not surprising um, and congratulations. Yeah. But I mean, it was definitely, that was the part I liked the least was having to rely on these yeah. group projects. And I was oh, like, yeah. how is this helping anybody? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I teach at Arizona State University. And so, and I get to see a lot of this in the students and there are definitely some epic younger people. In fact, Taylor Jenkins graduated from Arizona State University a couple years ago, and she's our operations manager for the company now. 
Mm-hmm. And so I do see that there are younger people that show up. But my solution was to find the olders there. And so I had a group of people that I kind of all went all the way through my both programs with that were older. And, you know, we we got on the same page faster. You know, yeah. Just, yeah, it was nice. It right. Was nice. Well, right. Con- congratulations. That is that's cool. Yeah. And the, the other thing, too, was that no one else was questioning the information mm-hmm. that they were being fed. So, you know, I'd have the the professor who was overweight, you know, eating jelly beans and drinking a Diet Coke. Talking about telling nutrition. to me about nutrition. Yeah. And then these young girls who, um, it's mostly women who become dietitians. I think there was two men in my program, you know, eating a candy bar, drinking their diet soda yeah. and just eating it up, right? With their low-fat yogurt as their snack. <laughs> and I'm just, it was just dumb dumbfounded on yeah. on both levels right from yeah. the the student view and from the professor view yeah oh i hear you yeah so what drives you so i had to think about that a lot because you know again towards the end of my program it was feeling like oh my gosh i really you know what what am i doing you know yeah. when i was surrounded by all this all these people dying in the hospital and all this stuff but i think my passion for sustainability mm-hmm. and my children are mm. are the two things that really keep me going so i mean i'm sure every parent you know can relate to the the children piece right yeah. just trying to make sure that your kids are turn into happy well adjusted kids in in real life right in in grown up life rather but um also it's really fantastic to be part of something that's bigger than you yeah and so i you know i i have an event coming up i do a lot of work with the farm to consumer legal defense fund Uh i don't know if you're familiar with them i'm not you're not oh they're fantastic so they you definitely need to to learn about them and get them on your podcast so john moody is the um is the um, executive director and I work very closely with them helping them with their fundraising um, but they are an organization that helps um, farmers and consumers be able to produce and purchase the foods of their choice without excess government intervention wow. so for example Joel Salatin just yesterday posted on his Facebook page how a government official showed up unannounced to his farm demanding that you know he he have an ins- an unannounced inspection basically mm-hmm. and Joel said to him well where's your card who are you? how do i know who you are who you say you are and the guy had no card on him oh my gosh and so Joel said well i'm i can't talk to you until you produce you know uh, identification, but really the guy should have a warrant too. And so yeah. the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund provides free legal assistance to all member farmers f- facing issues like that. So, you know, especially important with raw milk, oh, yes. with Mark Baker, who's a farmer up in Michigan, who Michigan had this rule that all pigs needed to be pink, raised indoors, have curly tails, and floppy ears. <laughs> or something with their ears. I can't remember if they were supposed to be floppy or straight up. And they ordered all farmers in Michigan who didn't have, you know, who had pigs that didn't um, uh, conform to these specs Uh to kill, to slaughter them. And almost all the farmers did, except for Mark Baker and one other farmer. Now, Mark Baker has these really special heritage breed pigs. They're they're hairy. Um, They also produce amazing bacon. He raises them outdoors. And it's a fantastic product that people want. And 
you know, the state has given him so much grief about oh. raising these pigs. And they're citing, you know, oh. that the, the wild pig population in Michigan, which Michigan's never really had a documented case of wild pigs, you know. Yep. Anyhow, so the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund has helped them. So it, they're basically helping not only farmers, but then also consumers who are parts of buying clubs. So I'm sure a lot of your members are parts of these sort of underground buying clubs Mm -hmm. um, where they're trying to get things like nutrient-dense food. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And so anyhow, this organization, um, they're doing uh, an event at Polyface Farm. If if anyone's never seen Polyface or met Joel Soliton, seen Uh him speak in, in real life, it's August 20th, 20th and 21st, and I'm heavily involved with them. So, but in just the greater um, food movement in general, the greater sustainability movement, and just trying to get people to, you know, realize that eating grass-fed herbivores is great for the planet and mm-hmm. also great for human health and not to be so scared. And, and you know, we're, we're finally coming around with the, you know, we don't have to necessarily be so low fat anymore and maybe right. cholesterol isn't so bad, uh-huh. you know, that they're starting to reverse their um, positions on that. Mm-hmm. But the red meat vilification is still really strong. Yeah. 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 So I'm all about education and I have to know, and you already mentioned several books, but I have to know, is there one book that has been, you know, that significant book for you in this process? Well, other than writing my own book, <laughs> I'd, I'd say The Paleo Solution um, definitely by Rob Wolf was the sort of the keystone for me for really transforming my life. Uh-huh. It just came at the perfect time for me and, you know, connected all the dots. I would also highly recommend um, Defending Beef by Nicolette Nyman. I don't know if you've ever read that, but if people are interested in sort of the environmental benefits and health benefits of of red meat. Nicolette has also become a good friend of mine and a great mentor. And her book is really fantastic. In fact, I did a podcast with her that people can, I'll give you the link to that. People can listen to it if they want the Cliff Notes version uh, of her book because she's a lawyer. So it's a a great book, but it's also an intense book. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what one final piece of advice do you have for listeners? So I guess it's, you know, to try to think about if if you won the lottery, what would you be doing differently? And then mm-hmm. try to do your best to do that even though you didn't win the lottery. Yeah. Right? So that's basically, you know, my, we, we play, we talk with our kids. We, we try to have family dinner all the time and we're sitting around and, you know, we'll say, okay, if you won the lottery, what would you do? You know, I'm sure people talk about this all the time. But my husband and I, are so fulfilled in our lives that we really wouldn't be doing anything differently. Um, I'm so happy that I get to help people with their diets and get and heal people with um, just through real food. And and he's so excited to be able to grow it and to share the knowledge that he has with other people. Um, We wrote that book together, the homegrown paleo cookbook. So it's a great sort of primer on our life together and it's um very visual so there's there's a million photographs in there that not only of food and and animals but also of our lifestyle so it's really we're just so blessed to be able to do what we do and i and i think you know i know everyone's not in the position to you know necessarily change their job right today but 
They can certainly go volunteer on a farm. Um, if they live in a city, they can do a community garden plot. I know, you know, you guys talk about this kind of stuff a lot. All the time, yep. But there's there's so many ways that people can connect with their food or just connect with their passion in general. So maybe it's not a career shift. Maybe it's, you know, just doing a little bit more on the weekend. But, you know, there's so many things we can that we have that we can give up, right? Like TV and <laughs> and other other distractions in the world that you know, you really Right. We yeah. really don't need, you know, 17 pairs of jeans and, and all the things we're spending money on and time on. So yeah. uh, really just trying to figure out what makes you happy and then go for it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Diana. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. And folks can find me at um, sustainabledish.com. And I do have a free ebook if they sign up for my newsletter. Perfect. And that is the 30-day guide to the sustainable diet, which is basically the diet that changed my life. And so I'm sharing that for free with anyone um, who goes to my site. Nice. That's an awesome gift. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Yes. Thanks. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know that according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, two-thirds of all our fruits and veggies eaten in the United States come from outside the country? And there are all kinds of problems with that. For one, an apple that had to travel hundreds or even thousands of miles to get to your plate can't be all that fresh or nutritious. And I say that's just crazy, especially when we can grow so many different varieties in our own front and backyards. Jumping into growing your own food is actually quite simple. You just need to know the rules. My free webinar, Introduction to Urban Farming, begins to frame out your pathway to growing your own healthy food. In this free webinar, you'll learn the three simple steps to becoming an urban farmer, the five components of healthy soil, and how to think regeneratively, which is, by the way, one of the most important concepts we need to be exploring right now. Will you join me in this webinar and help co-create the food revolution? Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to urbanfarmu.org to sign up for your free webinar. That's GARDEN to 44222 or urbanfarmu.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.